Chapter 10 of The Northern Spy. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover, Wyndham, Maine. The Northern Spy by J. Thomas Warren. Chapter 10 Ben Discovers Very Unpleasant Things. The room in which old Ben had secreted himself was separated from the kitchen by a thin board partition. This partition had been originally built of green lumber, which, as the seasoning process went on, contracted, leaving formidable cracks between the boards. And these openings had been covered up with long strips of newspapers pasted over them. As soon as Ben recovered his breath and had time to look about him, he became aware of the fact we have just stated. Now then, quoth he to himself, if them fellers will keep out of here, I reckon I can punch a hole through this strip of paper at the foot of the bed and see what they are up to. Seems to me there must be a whole regiment of them from the noise and clatter they make. Don't like to hear the rattling of them swords on the floor. Taint agreeable music to my peaceful ears, not half so sweet as the clatter of their horses hooves that trotting down the road would be. Wonder who the chaps are and what they are doing. Dang it, if I hadn't drunk that pison, maybe I'd get clear yet. My eyes, how the besky stuff burns and cramps my insides. I'm tunnel feared that I'll go off the pin suddenly. Think I feel a general sort of contraction of the bowels. Gosh, how it hurts. <sighs> who is that talking out there? Ben seemed to hear a familiar voice, and his curiosity exceeded his fears of the poison to such an extent that he apparently forgot the letter, and crept at once to the foot of the bed, listened with his ear to the wall. May I be blowed up with a torpedo if that ain't the strangest thing. Appears that it must be the voice of Georges St. Leger. Yet it can't be possible, for what would he be a-doin' here? Tuck prisoner again. My eyes, I wonder what that can be so. Oh, this poison, how it burns. I'm terribly feared that that breakfast will prove a mighty expensive one before it gets done with it, my hooky. I must get a squint into that other room somehow. I'm just a-dying with curiosity. Ben now took from his pocket a small jackknife and cut a slit in the paper, applied his eye to the aperture. What he saw startled him so much that he drew back suddenly, hitting his head a severe bump against the end rail of the bedstead. That brought a grunt of pain from his lips. Purty darn sharp edge on that rail. Don't see why that fellow that made it couldn't have run to the doss sorta. Oh my, that's just as I expected. There's George out there in the hands of them wagabonds. He don't seem much scared, though. Wonder what's come of the documents. Hope the Rebs won't get a hold of him. For if they do, I expect it'll be proof enough to hang him. Dressed in rebel unicorn and suspicious papers on his person, it looks bad, mighty bad, I tell you. Ben was correct, for in the other room was George St. Leger, a prisoner in the hands of half a score of rebel cavalry. A few words will explain how this untoward event came to pass. 
When George left old Ben Banks an hour before daybreak on that morning, he felt that if he was to reach his destination, or in other words, to get to Beaufort, he would have to ride vigorously for it, and so he spared neither spur nor whip in the endeavor to place as much ground between himself and the cavalry of Montague as possible. For he had learned from the lips of old Manx that he was being hotly pursued. In the first hour he rode nine miles, and was beginning to take carriage, for his horse was fresh, comparatively, and was proving himself a good traveler. He congratulated himself too soon, however, for the animal stepped upon a rolling stone and fell heavily upon its knees. The beast rose instantly, however, and started off again, but limped considerably. George drew rein to let the horse walk slowly a piece in hopes it would recover itself. But instead of getting better, the limping increased until, at the edge of a little brook, the horse refused to go further. It was now broad daylight, and the officer dismounted and examined the foot of his beast. It had sprained the ankle joint, which was already swelling rapidly. George at once bathed the leg with cold water, but it did not seem to relieve the horse any. He was now in a dilemma. He could not proceed for any distance on foot, and where was he to obtain another horse? While he was debating in his mind what to do, he heard the sound of horses' feet upon the road. He must conceal himself at once until they passed. It would not do to leave the horse, for that would cause suspicion, and so he tried to lead the animal into the bushes at the roadside. But the horse obstinately refused to go a step. So George left it in the road and ran into a strip of bushes. But he had tarried too long with the horse, and the party of dragoons catching a glimpse of his retreating form raised a shout of joy. They were a portion of one of Montague's squads, which had been making a detour to the left and had now swept round into the main road. The horse standing in the road and the act of flying were so suspicious that they concluded the fugitive must be the man they were after. Two of them discharged their pistols, spurred their horses across the stream and into a thicket. But finding the bushes too thick to permit a passage, they turned back to the wood. The others jumped a low fence and ran their horses to the other side of the thicket, only to see the fugitive running at the top of his speed twenty rods ahead of them and beyond the creek. With a volley of curses and a few straggling shots, the rebels set out in pursuit. But the surface of the ground was very uneven and intersected by irregular rows of low, stunted bushes so that but little headway could be made by horsemen, and in three minutes the fugitive was out of sight entirely. All this happened only a short distance from the house where old Ben had taken his breakfast so unceremoniously. George, although he perceived that his pursuers had given up the chase, still hurried on as fast as he could run. He was now skirting along the edge of the woods just in the rear of the farmhouse, it would have no doubt escaped discovery by the cavalry had he not accidentally run foul of a new danger. The owner of the house, a tall, wiry, shaggy-headed fellow wearing a dilapidated and dirty rebel uniform, and who was minus his left arm, which he had lost at Murfreesboro, happened just at that time to be going to the spring at the back of his lot for a pail of water having mixed up his banner for a cake, and put a piece of pork on the griddle to broil at the house. 
This chap had just filled his pail and was at the point of returning when St. Leger burst from the brush and stood before him. Both men were surprised. The rebel spoke first. Hello, what's up, that you're running so fast? After a blasted Yankee spy, said George, his wits not forsaking him for a second. He ran down here this way a minute ago. Did you see him? Thunder, no. Was that what the firing was about a bit ago? Yes, I shot at him twice, but don't think I hit him. Are them fellers part of your gang? asked the rebel as he pointed to two dragoons who had ridden across the field toward the house. Yes, said George with a sudden start. I must be off. Tell the men to join me at the back of the run where the Yankee left his horse. Without waiting to get a reply, St. Leger bounded off like a deer, and so suddenly, indeed, that somehow or other it seemed suspicious to the one-armed rebel, who at once raised a yell and attracted the attention of the two cavalrymen, who rode toward him at full speed, and on hearing the man's story, at once declared that the person he had seen was the fugitive. The one-armed rebel dropped his bucket, and all three set out at full speed to catch the Yankee. George saw them coming and ran through the woods for half a mile when he came unexpectedly out upon the highway, and clambered over the fence to find himself in the presence of four horsemen who drew their pistols and called upon him to surrender. It were folly to resist longer, and so very unwillingly the captain made a virtue of necessity and surrendered. The men were part of the same squad as his first pursuers, and they bade him mount behind one of them, and they thus rode along until they met the others, when all turned back to the house of the one-armed rebel. And thus it happened that George St. Leger was one of the occupants of the kitchen adjoining the bedroom wherein was concealed the worthy Ben, who trembled alternatively, lest the poison should destroy, or the rebels discover him in his hiding-place. St. Leger still had the dispatches upon his person, retaining them because they had been captured by surprise and had, as yet, no opportunity to dispose of them. If found upon him, he knew they would condemn him, but he had no way of getting rid of them without being seen. So he maintained a bold front and trusted for the best. The one-armed Dick was now set to work to hunt up something to eat for the troopers, who declared that they were ravenously hungry. The rebel demurred, saying that they would eat him out of house, but the troopers were inexorable, and Dick brought out a piece of pork as big as his hand, which he began to cut into slices. The poor fellow was astonished to find his pork and batter gone, and the contents of the black bottle spewed around the floor but he concluded that it was the work of some of the dragoons who had been there during his absence. All the dragoons but two left the room and were outside with their horses. St. Leger, who was left free to sit in the room, was gazing into the fire intently. He walked up and down the room, approaching close to the fire each time. Suddenly he drew from his breast pocket the envelope containing the dispatches and threw it upon the blazing fire. Dick saw the move and comprehended it instantly. He leaped forward and tried to draw a packet from the fire, but St. Leger was on the watch, and catching him by the collar, he hurled him backward across the room. "'He's burning up some papers!' roared Dick. "'Thunder, uh, that's so!' cried the other two as they ran forward and turned to rescue the papers from the blaze. 
back, cried St. Leger fiercely. But the rebels didn't back, as he expected them to. On the contrary, both ran the faster. St. Leger seized one by the throat and held him fast. The other slipped and fell on the floor, but struggled to his feet and dashed at the packet. Too late, only a corner of the envelope remained, whereupon was written the name Hardy. Dick had picked up a pistol, and while debating whether to shoot or not, off went the load, sending the ball through the thin partition within an inch of old Ben's nose, just as he was wondering whether he ought not to sally out and help George. "'Dang it, that's close-nippin,' muttered the old fellow. "'I knowed from the fuss that the owner of this hotel weren't noted for his politeness. He's an honorary mean chap, he is.' Mighty glad them documents are burned up. Smoke won't tell no tales about them secrets. You'll never catch me a toting around papers. It's dangerous. I'd rather tote this here pack of mine another fifty year. Hello, here they all come, head over heels. Sure enough, the report of the pistol brought the rest of the dragoons into the house in double quick time. What's the matter? demanded Lieutenant Johnson, who commanded the detachment. Who fired that pistol? Me replied Dick. What for and whom at? Went off accidentally, sir. Anybody hurt? Guess not. This prisoner burned up some document. Burned up a document? Yes. Why did you permit him to do so? The two soldiers replied, Did it too quick. We didn't expect nothing of the kind. All burnt up? All but this hair. The lieutenant seized the bit of an envelope. Got Hardy's name on it. Yes, sir. Was it this you destroyed? Was it your dispatch? What dispatches, sir? asked St. Leger calmly. We are in pursuit of a Yankee messenger. We have arrested you, and answering the description, you had in your possession important papers. Why did you burn them? The papers I burnt did not belong to you. They were put in my charge. I have destroyed them. Then you are a Yankee? I'm a native of South Carolina, sir. The Dickens you are. So is the man we are after. <laughs> and now, sir, give us your name, if you please. But if I don't please, suggested George, we will compel you. Then to save you that trouble, call me Captain Maurice Hoffman, aide on General Hardy's staff. What? You are not so foolish as to think to deceive us. We happen to know you. You left Sherman's army at Millen. You bore dispatches to Foster at Beaufort, although they were addressed to Beauregard. You see, we know you. St. Leger saw that by some means his true character had been penetrated, and that further attempts to mislead his captors would produce no good. So he answered, Think it so, if you wish it. You acted treacherously in destroying your papers. I promised to place them in Foster's hand or to destroy them. I have but kept my promise. Ah, then you acknowledge yourself a Yankee? Call me that if you will. I care nothing. Then you are a spy, sir. No, you err. Only a bearer of dispatches. But you are caught within our lines. Well? And where are you informed? Well? And have no dispatches? Well? Well? Don't that make you a spy? The dispatches have just been destroyed, as you know. 
I know nothing about it. Your men saw it. I didn't. Nor do I know they were dispatches. You are a spy. Men, what shall we do with him? Spies are hung, generally, said Dick, who smarted under the rough usage he had received at the hands of the stranger. That's so, responded several. Sir, I protest, interposed St. Leger with dignity and warmth. I'm no spy, nor if I were have you the authority to try or punish me. I am your prisoner. Send me to headquarters there to be properly disposed of. Let my crime, if any I've committed, be there defined. The punishment adjudged and duly executed. Would you teach me my duty, sir? Certainly, if you don't know it already. You are a bold youth. Sherman's men are not noted for cowardice, I believe, sir, replied St. Leger with a contemptuous smile. Impudent, too, eh? replied Lieutenant Johnson. Then if you add that vice to your others, by Jove, you'll have to swing. If I can find a rope in the house. Want a rope? Hey! cried Dick, the owner of the house, and who had no very warm feelings toward St. Leger. I ain't but one, and that's the cord of my bedstead. And if the old woman was to hum, I suppose she'd see us all in Texas, for she'd let us use it for such a dirty purpose as to hang a Yankee. But the old gal ain't here, so out comes the bed cord. End chapter 10